welcome to the 220th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. I recently attended a Land Stewardship Project field day where someone described perfectly the dilemma many farmers face when it comes to the land they manage. We can use techniques like no-till to keep from disturbing a field's surface and thus prop up and protect the so-called structure of our soil's quote-unquote house, but are we providing the kind of biological activity needed to stock the refrigerator in that home? Is there food present to feed the house's inhabitants? That's a question crop and livestock producer Jim Wolf thinks about a lot. Wolf, along with his wife Twyla and son Travis, raises around 350 Simmental and Simmental Angus brood cows in western Minnesota's Pope County. They also raise row crops in a part of the state where a rolling landscape and glacial till soils make it a challenge to keep erosion in check. As Jim showed during the LSP field day, his family is utilizing a variety of techniques to not only protect the soil's structure, but build its biology and stock that refrigerator. For example, they make extensive use of managed rotational grazing on perennial pastures to prevent overgrazing and build a soil biome with the even distribution of manure and urine. In addition, the wolves have integrated mixes of cover crops into their row crop system. These cover crops not only protect the surface of the fields, but provide another source of inexpensive forage for the cattle herd, particularly during the fall and winter. An added bonus is the grazing of these cover crops builds natural fertility and increases water infiltration, which benefits the cash crops that are planted the following spring. Because soil health is so key to the Wolf family's Clear Springs Cattle Company, they prioritize practices that feed the long-term biological health of that biome even if it means going against the trend of pushing production on every last inch of the land. For example, they've been experimenting with shutting off every third row in their corn planter, resulting in wide gaps distributed throughout the field. These gaps make it possible for more sunlight to make it to the soil's surface, which benefits the cover crops that have been interseeded in the corn. After the field day, I talked to Jim Wolf as well as Kent Solberg. Solberg is a livestock farmer as well as a livestock and grazing specialist with the Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota. First, Kent shared with me the importance of balancing disturbance and rest when building soil health and how integrating livestock into a cropping operation can help stock that refrigerator in a farm's basement. Yeah, natural systems, Brian, are built around acute disturbance, whether that's fire or, or grazing or even even a storm event. And it's, a, it's an acute disturbance event, but it's often followed by uh, long periods of rest. And that rest period allows that land to recover. When we get into a chronic disturbance system where it's happening year after year, even multiple times a year, for example, tillage can be multiple times a year. In organic systems and conventional systems, we're seeing upwards of four, five, six tillage passes a year. And I'd, I'd consider that a chronic event. There's never enough opportunity for that ground to rest and recover. Where if it's an acute event, if it's once every so often, nature has the ability to recover itself. The microbes have the uh, ability to repopulate. The vegetation has an opportunity to grow and provide that continuous living cover, like you said, uh, to protect that soil. So we're capturing every raindrop and we're creating those opportunities for the microbes to cycle those nutrients. When we have chronic events, it's, it's, it's like chronic illness in a human it drags them down or if I, I like to use the analogy like in tillage tillage is like uh, a tornado coming through your home or your community 
And if it happens once in a lifetime, yes, it's destructive, yes, it's tragic, yes, it's inconvenient, but with time we can rest, we can recover, we can rebuild. But if we had a tornado coming through our farm or our community every year, we'd be packing and moving. You know, it, it, it wouldn't be something we could handle. It's just too stressful. Acute disturbances are normal in this world, but it's having that ability to rest and recover. And when we create that opportunity, nature just does a wonderful job of healing. A great uh, opportunity exists for people who have livestock and do crops. Because now we can integrate perennials into that crop rotation, use it as livestock forage, use it as land for grazing, integrate those livestock, take some of those chronic tillage events or even chronic uh, repeated uh, fertilizer events out of the mix, provide some diversity, give that ground a chance to rest, rebuild those microbial populations. Yeah, if we're an organic system, we may need to use tillage to bring that into row crop protection again, but we've already taken multiple years of tillage out of the system versus multiple tillage passes a year. That's moving the, the pendulum more towards that acute side than that chronic side. Other other things is just there's, there's tools out there like vertical till you know now we have an opportunity um, to reduce the depth of our tillage and the severity of our tillage uh, we've got organic producers who uh, have figured out ways to go from a, a perennial hay or pasture crop to a row crop system and reduce their tillage to down to one or two passes for the year versus four or five six with cultivation rotary hoe disking field cultivator everything we can pull a lot of that out even reducing tillage passes is moving Moving us more towards that acute side of things, but I think if there's a uh, in a diversified operation that has access to livestock, it's very easy to bring in these more perennial crops, reduce those tillage events, and move away from that. No tillers, another example of that. No tillers, you know, pretty much stay away from tillage. Yes, they lean on other things, other tools to do it, but it's a way to reduce that chronic disturbance or minimize it. Even to go to no-till for one of your crops, uh, and some producers find that strip crop and their soil type and where they're at with their soil health and uh, getting that soil resource to recover. Strip till uh, is a way to reduce tillage. You, you're reducing the uh, total area of the field that you're impacting with tillage. You're maintaining some of that with soil cover on and minimizing that disturbance and just reducing that to more of a chronic uh, level type event. Well, and speaking of no-till, one I think really good point that was brought up by a soil health expert here was when people were adopting no-till in the 1980s, that was a, a great step, but what they discovered was, yeah, you were kind of protecting that structure, but you know, I think the, the analogy that was used was you weren't stocking the refrigerator. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, I think that's an important point why the kind of the using the cover cropping and the diverse yes. uh, rotations is important. Yeah, the no-till's protecting the house or the habitat, so to speak. We're not destroying it, but we found in the last 10, 15 years, uh, like it was said, we need to stock the refrigerator. We need to feed those microbes. No-till is a wonderful tool, but we find that whether it's no-till or cover crops, just using one of these tools doesn't really move us forward. It's the suite of these used together under the principles of soil health that really move us forward. The tools are just ways to help us get there. But we want to keep that soil covered. We want to add diversity to the system to restock that refrigerator. We want to. We need to keep a living root in the soil. Those microbes are associated with a living plant root. We have to have that there. We need to minimize that disturbance. 
uh, in whatever way possible and, and look for new ways to do that uh, on each and every field and each and every farm. And then where and whenever possible, integration of livestock. And the more of those things we use together versus just fixating or focusing on one tool, the faster we're going to create conditions that are optimal to microbes and, and move soil health forward. Cover crops, that, that term is a great term because people kind of know what it is right away, but it's actually kind of an inaccurate term. We're really looking at not just covering that surface. That's right. And then, I mean, that we're really looking at a, a more complete, holistic type more way of holistic. looking at it. Yeah, again, the bulk of the microbial activity happens at or in association with a living root. We have to have that living root. Most of our crops are only alive and in the soil. Our cash grain crops, 90 to 110 days out of the year. That's less than one-third of the year. We're missing opportunity, and we, we have to have that home, and part of that home comes with that living root, but that's also the food chain, you know, the food supply for them. As those plants are extruding polysaccharides, you know, there's this mutual relationship, symbiotic relationship between the microbes and the plant. The plant's giving up some of its energy it's creating through photosynthesis in exchange for, it's an economic system, they're exchanging some of that for nutrients and water that only the microbes can extract from the soil. And, and so we absolutely need that living root in there. Covers go a long way to providing that during what we call those shoulder seasons outside side of the cropping system. They keep a cover on the ground to protect that uh, home from raindrop impact, from wind, thermally also, moderating temperatures uh, under there because they don't like things too hot or too cold. I mean, we were at a field day here two weeks ago, and it was cover crop plots at this field day, and I just happened to have a soil thermometer with me, and one of the plots had been freshly tilled, and I, it was 86 degrees out that afternoon, and the soil thermometer went in, newly tilled plot, and it was 112 degrees in the sun in the afternoon in that plot went over to the fence line where the grass was knee high and the soil temperature was 70 degrees. So cover crops, whether they're annual or perennial, provide that shade, that protective layer to minimize that thermal change. Cover crops like temperatures like we do. Gets too hot, we get stressed. You know, when temperatures start getting over about 113 degrees, we start they start shutting down. They actually, some of them even start dying. At 140, it's pretty well lethal for soil microbes. So that thermal Thermal protection that cover crops offer is just another huge benefit. Also, the protection from just that raindrop falling. That raindrop's coming at 20 miles an hour. We hit bare soil, we get soil splash. Soil splash is soil movement. What soil movement? Erosion, you know, and so minimizing that. We want to keep the soil in place. We want to cycle those nutrients, and we want to capture every drop of water that falls on there. That's going to enhance our crop product productivity in our farming system. And that just reminds me of something else, and this was a really good point that was brought up was, even if you're not raising livestock, you are raising livestock. And, yes. and I think you maybe had made the point that something around the long lines of that livestock you're taking to market, is it's because of some other livestock. It's because of the livestock we have in the soil. And, and if we take care of them, it'll take care of the livestock we take to market. And there's just a tremendous amount of that there. Uh, some people have said there's the equivalent of two elephants in mass, in biological mass, in one acre of, of soil. We have In Minnesota, we have very few acres of land that can even support a 1,000-pound cow. And yet we have... Uh, the equivalent of two African elephants, you know, living in that soil in the form of microbiology. They need to be fed. They need a home. They need to be managed. And the better job we do of managing, and we're finding now time and time again, case study after case study, research demonstration after research demonstration, that we take care of those soil microbes, it's going to benefit uh, not only our crops, but our livestock, and ultimately human health down the road. 
After my interview with Solberg, Jim Wolf talked to me about the role grazing plays in the success of his operation and how building soil health has become a key pivot point for his family. Yeah, we're, uh, we're running about 350 registered Simmental, Simmental Angus cross cows for seed stock operation, but we're very much a grazing operation. We recognize that what the cow does best is she can harvest her own feed, distribute the fertilizer or the manure, and uh, so the longer we can keep that cow on the landscape grazing lowers our cost, and uh, it's best, best for, for us economically and also for the environment. We would be grazing typically probably oh, pasture, four acres of cow, and then we do have a lot of cover crops. So I think we're probably looking at if we would, because we incorporate some of the neighbor's land where we can plant a cover crop on their land and utilize their land base to help grow our feed to extend our grazing period. And that's probably about eight acres of cow total that we would be running on. One of the things you had talked about, we're in this glacial till area, which is kind of, for people who don't know, you got these knobs, and it can be pretty thin soil up there. And uh, uh, you've got these lowlands where there be some, there can be some monkey areas, and and it, water management can be real difficult. But it sounds like that's a really important priority for you is to figure out how to capture that moisture and utilize that moisture better by building that soil organic matter. Yeah, capture every drain drop where it falls. When you live in the hills, it's more important than ever. Everybody gets too much water in their lower parts of their farms. Sometimes you have enough in the high part, but if you can keep the water on top of the hills and keep it from running down the the slope, um, that is very beneficial. The only way you're going to do that is to have something vegetation, organic matter, or something to hold up that water flow. So one of the things we looked at, it's kind of a new thing. I think this is the second year you've been doing it, was you had interseeded, I believe it was cereal rye, into some corn, but you were, it looks like you're doing a system where you're, well, you're, you can describe it better than me, but you're, you're trying to figure out a way to give that more sunlight. But maybe describe that system that you, you kind of set up, and you've had pretty good luck with it. The last two years we have went in with the corn about knee-high or a little less, and with the rotary hoe and an air seeder and blew on a cover crop in the corn rows. Um, we used an annual ryegrass, some cereal rye, and then some brassicas and some clovers. This year we did a test where we shut off every third row. Uh, we went to, I'll back up, we were at 22-inch rows and we moved to a 30-inch row when we started interseeding just to get a little more sunlight. This year we did a test on the 30-inch rows where we shut off every third row on the corn planter. So we have a 30-inch row, then a 60-inch row, then a 30-inch row. Just to allow more sunlight down into the cover crop. We did up the population on the rows we were planting, so the population that we planted would equal the test strip of all, all 30-inch rows right beside it. So our population seed count was the same per acre, and uh, we'll be harvesting it this fall and be looking forward to some yield checks to see if we give up any yield. Um, but it does look like the extra beneficial sunlight to the cover crop is definitely benefiting the cover crop, and we have a lot healthier cover crop growing in that corn. And it sounds like you get a couple of advantages. One is you're building that soil organic matter long-term and, and providing that protection, that surface protection to reduce erosion and runoff. But also you're looking at, well, how can, how much forage can I get out of that? Because you, you, you would be looking at grazing that. Is that correct? Yeah, like I started out with, we're a grazing operation, so we try to do any practice we can to extend our grazing, provide us with more grazing. 
you're always better off to have more grazing available than cows you have. You're not so tempted to overgraze if you always got plenty of forage to move them to the next field or the next paddock in a timely manner. When you run behind, that's when you tend to be tempted to overgraze. Well, one of the things we looked at, we'd had some soil experts here kind of look at some soil samples you have, and they looked at some of your uh, cover cropped soil and uh, you know some of the stuff you've been doing a diversity of systems on. The, I guess the one thing that was really striking was how many earthworms, and, and I know you've been noticing, it sounds like you've been noticing some real indicators of improved soil quality over the past couple of years. The no-till system and the cover crop system together does, you know, all the soil health meetings I've been to, as they always talk about that, is the, the organisms underneath the soil and how it helps them. Um, I guess I asked the question today, and I got it answered, that about the only one that we can see with the, our physical eye is the earthworm. And my question was, is the earthworm a good indicator of how much living organisms we have under the soil? And the answer that I got from the soil scientist was, yes, it is. So, yeah, it's very simple for us to just go out and do earthworm counts uh, and compare that from field to field or from practice to practice. And I think it is a good measuring tool um, to see how healthy our soil is. You did one. You did a real a sample. You like like a what was it? I don't know, foot by foot or something, where you were able to get a real exact comparison to a neighbor's field as far as earthworm count. Yeah, I did a foot by foot and went about five or six inches deep. Did a, it was a field that we had no-tilled for two years. It's got a cover crop currently growing on it. Um, had a cover crop on it last year. It had 19 earthworms in that foot, and then my neighbor's field that is conventionally farmed was about three. I found three earthworms in that same area. The other thing you had mentioned, you'd showed us um, a pasture. It's kind of got a lot of, I think, native species in it, and you've been working with the Fish and Wildlife Service to seed some native species in there. But you had kind of, it sounds like through adjusting your grazing system a little bit and resting it a little bit more, you've seen, sounds like a difference in the way that that land is kind of managing water and, and uh, kind of the soil health is improving a little bit? Yeah, here again, the more we can keep on our on our soils, our pastures are the same. I mean, I'm amazed as I drive around the country. I know the corn farmers look at every cornfield. Uh, you know, whatever we're doing at home is what catches our attention when we travel through the countryside. And so I don't miss too many pastures. <laughs> and uh, I'm kind of amazed at how many pastures I see around the countryside that are overgrazed and, you know, they look more like a lawn. When you have that short of vegetation on a hillside, it's pretty common sense to what's going to happen on the hard rain. Um, that water is going to be able to run down quite rapidly, where the more vegetation you have there, the more you're going to capture up on them hillsides. And, and well, we are seeing some differences in some of our lower ground that used to pond water does no longer pond. You kind of had to get used to, it sounds like, accepting you weren't going to graze it down, that you weren't going to take all that feed off of there, but letting the cattle stomp some of that down and leaving some biomass behind kind of as an investment in that soil a little bit. Was that a little bit of an adjustment for you from getting around that idea of, well, i got to get out there and get as much feed out, out of that as I can? Yes, that is an adjustment. It is a, it is a mindset. The other thing, you know, we have some pastures that, we might use pretty hard in the spring when we calve. You only have certain pastures or certain paddocks that are accessible to supplement feed into, and so you end up using them or maybe even almost close to abusing them in the spring before you can turn out to where the cow can sustain herself strictly on grass. But then on them pastures, a lot of them will just 
get off of them for the whole rest of the season. You'll have a lot of dried, mature grass that will carry over, but we always feel we don't lose it because if we use that pasture the same way the next spring, them cows are going to eat all that last year grass, that dried material, when the new grass is coming and you really don't lose that forage. Um, so that's one thing you have to get through too, is if you if you move out of a paddock and you still got forage out there, that doesn't mean that the cow might not eat it the next time you graze that paddock. And a lot of times with a lot of our grasses, especially in the good seasons and we get a lot of rain, they, their grasses get too washy and it goes through their digestive system too fast that some older dead grass is very beneficial for us to give them more dry matter and slow down their digestive tract. Have you become more aware or more appreciative of what's going on underneath the ground? Like the roots, uh, I guess, not just looking at how much growth you have on top, but what's going on there in, in that root system underneath, the stuff that you can't really see. Yeah, I learned it many years ago at a grazing workshop. Your roots go down as tall as your grass is tall. And if you keep it grazed short, them roots will actually die off. Yeah, you have to you have to keep in mind what's happening below the surface just as well as above the surface. Is there any what are you excited about looking into into the future? Is there any other anything else you want to kind of experiment with? I'd never be able to look too far ahead because we don't know what's all coming, but I think one thing that I tell my boys, I think I may be too old to do it because it gets a little complex. But being in the seed stock business and the genetic business, we do a very, very good job of measuring product production per cow. But really what we need to do is we need to measure production of pounds of beef per acre. And it gets very complex because there's so many factors, whether, but you know, we really don't know what is the ideal cow size, what is the ideal plant species. There's a lot of things that we don't know because we're, like I said, it's a very complex system to to get to measuring that. But I think that's probably where we're going to go and I like I said I'm probably too old already and I think it's for my boys. The, the thing that really hit me on that one is um, I was at a genetic meeting for cattle. This was a number of years ago and I heard a speaker say that pioneer seed corn did not make the ear of corn any bigger in the last 50 years. All they did is they engineered the corn to be able to plant at a heavier population. So on the cow genetic side, we tend to always want to think more pounds per calf, but you know, if we start measuring more pounds per acre, maybe that does mean a smaller animal, but we can run more of them per acre and we're actually going to produce more pounds of beef per acre. So that's a challenging thing. And it sounds like that's a connection to soil health in a way. If you're building your soil health and building the quality of those pastures, that would make it possible to maybe look at something like that. Oh, very much so. And that's what's going to make it a complex system because you have so many variables. You have the variability of your soil health, the variability of your plant species, the variability of your genetic makeup of your livestock. You know, there's there's a lot of variables and to get all them variables to try to figure out which is the proper ratio of each variable to maximize the production. Probably more than I can do, but I hope I get to watch them. <laughs> For more on the Land Stewardship Project's work related to soil health, see the Soil Builders page at landstewardshipproject.org. 
There, you'll find resources and videos, as well as other podcasts featuring farmers and others who are working to balance profitability with soil health. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.